You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. What is the most healing quality a physician can offer a patient or society? Join us today to discuss time, peace, and healing is Nobel Prize winner and author, professor of cardiology emeritus at the Harvard School of Public Health, senior physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and the chairman and founder of the Lown Cardiovascular Center and Lown Cardiovascular Research Foundation, Dr. Bernard Lown. Bernard, welcome to Inspired Act. Thanks for coming into the studio today. Thank you, Marty. It's always good to engage in dialogue, argument, discussion with you. We have done so over the years. Time is a big issue for people. A lot of people listening to this program are, feel like they're being forced to see people in 15 minutes. Now, what do you think that does to medicine? I believe that the critical issue in medicine today is time because time is the factor that accounts for a high cost of health care, an absence of time. The moment a doctor doesn't have time, he treats the chief complaint. I mean, the patient comes in and says, I have an ache in my left shoulder. Frequently, you find that that is merely an admission ticket, the way to enter the medical arrangement. And once you talk with them and take time, you learn that the shoulder is not what's bothering them. What's bothering them is the fact that they hate their job. They haven't got a good marital relationship. Their son is misbehaving. Any number of problems... And the moment you begin to take time, you do not refer to other specialists. You do not refer to imaging. When you don't take time, you treat the chief complaint. And the chief complaint is fundamentally an admission ticket. Supposing you had an admission ticket to a Boston Symphony, and you are supposed to write a critique for the Boston Globe based on the admission ticket. Okay? What would it sound like? Idiotic, right? That's what doctors do, idiocy today. Because fundamentally, by constriction of time, they respond rapidly and instantly to what is imagined as an issue where 80% of what I saw as a cardiologist seeing patients from all over the world, 80% were simple, rough-and-tumble problems of daily life. What would you advise people to, how can they fight back? A lot of people feel uh, impotent in this regard. They don't know how to get more time. What would you tell them? I would tell them to resist. And resisting is both individual and collective. By that, I mean if you individually resist, you become a martyr or a fool. When you collectively resist, that means you get colleagues to work with you conjointly you can be effective. And all my life, I've proved that, I believe. You have. This actually brings us to another subject that I was very anxious to talk to you about, and that is the uh, sort of political involvement of doctors. There are some people who say that doctors ought to be apolitical. They ought, to, they ought not have any opinions, or if they do have opinions, not express any political opinions. You are certainly not one of those guys. My politics flows from medicine, my love of medicine, my love of the calling. If you're going to take care of people, what is the leading cause of disease in the world today? Poverty. If you don't address poverty, 
you're not addressing illness. If you're not addressing illness, how can you pretend to be a humane doctor? So it's not politics. It's humanitarianism qua politics. You have to enter the political process in order to affect it. Early on in my life, I was a student at Johns Hopkins. The year was 1942. I was a first-year student during the war. It was terrible. We went continuously, and Baltimore was hot, no air conditioning. Mm. I worked in the blood bank, and they segregated blood, colored blood and white blood. The difference was the color had a C, and the white blood had a mirror image, a W. When I was on alternate nights, they always had colored blood was in adequate supply, white blood was in short supply. When I was on, they always had enough blood because I bought a crayon and made it in mirror image W. <laughs> you did. And the surgical house staff loved me because, the, you know, they were short of blood and they couldn't use colored blood for white people. So... Eventually, I was discovered and kicked out of medical school. I was going to say, they must have been pretty angry. Dr. Blaylock kicked me out of medical school. He says, out. This was, I mean, his lip quivered. He sounded Churchillian. But he says to me, never in the history of medicine was such a almost crime committed, you know? That was taking a big risk, though, Bernard, right? I mean, how many people would do that, take a chance? I mean, you were thrown out of medical school, literally? I was thrown out, but what happened? In medical school, there was a very activist group at that time called AIMS, Association of Interns and Medical Students. They were militant, progressive, and they called the White House. This was during the war. They called the White House, and they asked to speak to General McNutt, who was head of manpower, and they got Dr. Switzer, who was the head of medical manpower, and she realized that doctors, they threatened to strike the place. She called the dean. She says, get this boy back in. And they did that. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining us today to discuss time, peace, and healing is Nobel Prize winner, author, and professor of cardiology emeritus at the Harvard School of Public Health, senior physician at Brigham Women's Hospital in Boston, and chairman and founder of the Lowndes Cardiovascular Center and the Lowndes Cardiovascular Research Foundation, Dr. Bernard Lowndes. So Dr. Blaylock must have been pretty unhappy with you. Is I he, don't know. He didn't speak he to didn't me. He didn't speak to you. <laughs> so how would I know? <laughs> he was so great... I got back, but it taught me many lessons. It taught me that effectiveness required collegiality, cooperation with others. By yourself, you're a mock hero. Together with others, you can affect change. But do you think a person in a specialty, I mean, you're a cardiologist primarily, yet uh, you've been extremely socially active, won the Nobel Peace Prize for, uh, for this purpose. Do you believe that any specialist in any field can take a, an important role? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is accidental that I was a cardiologist. If I was a neurologist, I would have been even more active because, after all, that engages the brain rather than the heart. And the lessons I learned, even in the 70s, when I didn't like the direction of medicine in 1968 was going because of the rise of technology subsuming human relationships, 
the arbitrary action and diagnosis, you know, the, the always resort to technology, unwarranted interventions that were not based on evidence. I started my own group in 1968, and everybody around Harvard says, you lost six months. Now it's how many years? We're around, we're well-known, and we've done a lot of good things. You felt that technology with regard to cardiology, you were talking about cardiac catheterization, cardiac surgery, was too aggressive for most clinical situations. Do you still feel that way? Absolutely. If you look at our group, we ran a study where people come to us for a second opinion for coronary intervention. And invariably, the patient has been told, you must have bypass or angioplasty or, or stent. If you don't have it, you have a time bomb in your chest or a widowmaker in your heart or some such terrible incantation or hexing the patient. And they're afraid. And when they come to our group, we have the 685 successive such patients we followed. And looking back, we referred for intervention 10%. 10%. I would never have predicted it. What happened to them? The survival rate is as good as any. The mortality over a year is 1.5% or something like that. So the point is the reflex. We are doing things because it's, it's there, like climbing Mount Everest. You know, why did you climb Mount Everest? Because it was there. And there is a scientific rationalization comes in, and there's bad education that the doctor doesn't realize the whole Hippocratic legacy, that the body is self-healing, that people do very well with coronary artery disease. Atrial fibrillation, I said 40 years ago, was a benign illness, consistent with longevity. Causes strokes, though, don't you think? But I'm saying you got to treat it. you got to prevent stroke, and you got to control right. the heart rate. But if you do both... In the lone fibrillator, I think they live more yeah, than average life expectancy. <laughs> it protects against it is certain it, kinds of disease. It's a relatively benign condition. Yeah. I do want to ask you to make a comment to the people listening. The, the people listening to this, this program are mostly doctors. There's other medical professionals. A lot of these people are, are in practice, mostly generalists, although there'll be some specialists as well. How do you think any one of those people could become involved in a bigger way in the social problems that you've become so involved with in, in your career? I mean, they'll look at this and say, well, you're sitting in an ivory tower. You're at Harvard. Here I am trying to see patients one after the other. How can I do it? Leave them at the end of this interview with some idea about that. I think I've written a book that just came out, Prescription for Survival, A Doctor's Journey to End Nuclear Madness, that lays out the very question you have posed. And it's an important question, but it cannot be answered in some quick aphorism. Each situation requires an analysis, and doctors can engage with others in terms of the time they have, of the way they deal with drugs, of the way they're exploited by a whole host of things. The primary care, the general physician, in my mind, is the god of medicine, is the central figure. I don't think cardiologists or neurologists are basic to health. It's the primary care physician. We can help. We can contribute. But the primary care physician, in order to be that agent that directs patients and helps them integrate diverse medical opinion and values, 
has to be a lot brighter than I am as a cardiologist. And he has to also be a humanist because the moment you indulge in literature and culture, you become very sensitive. Your skin is torn off and it's mere dendrites sensing reality. And you sense reality in a unique way and the patient knows that. That is a, uh, it's a wonderful thought on which we, unfortunately, are going to have to end today. I'm going to invite you back in this program, Bernard, and we can talk. Uh, and the next time, maybe we'll argue some more. I want to thank Nobel Prize winner, author, and professor of cardiology emeritus, Harvard School of Public Health, senior physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and the chairman and founder of the Lowne Cardiovascular Center and Lowne Cardiovascular Research Foundation, Dr. Bernard Lowne. Bernard, thanks so much for coming into the studio to talk to me today. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels.